Welcome back, folks, on the second edition of our Dark Sky series with Get a Grip on Lighting. On today's show, I have a Minnesota native, Greggy. It's not me. <laughs> no, there's more no. than one person lives there. His name is Paul Bogart, and he wrote a book called The End of Night. What is it called, Scott? Yeah. The End of Night? The End of Night. I read it, but I listened to it on Audible. What a book. If you're into the dark sky and you want to know the ethical case, which is what we're doing here on the show, you can check out his book. And great guest, Greg. And uh, really enjoyed speaking to him about, you know, dark sky and why we should be we distributors who are in this chain and selling so much outdoor lighting need to start thinking about this. Yeah, and you see that dark sky has people across all professions. And he's a university professor. We're gonna have other guests as we go forward with this. That everybody's interested in this, or should be interested, or should be aware of it. And then I think it's gonna to continue to be out there in the market. One of the people I'm so thankful for is Josh Brown over at Keystone Technologies, who we talked to a couple times over, over the last couple of weeks saying, hey, we're thinking about doing this. What are your thoughts? And he goes, I'm in. We'll do it. We want to be involved in this. We want to take on this initiative. We want to be a manufacturer leader for Dark Sky. We don't know what exactly we're going to do yet. We don't know how it's all going to play out, but we're going to support distribution in this initiative. Way to go, Keystone. So check out their line of fixtures. Greg, what's it called? XFIT Outdoor Fixtures. That's what they have right now. They are new to the exterior lighting market, but as Michael said, they're committed to being dark sky friendly, dark sky compliant, and getting there. So in the future, when a distributor needs to find out, if when they get a request, because it's going to happen, to make their uh, facility, a customer says, make my facility dark sky friendly. Keystone's going to have everything you need to make that happen. So be ready for it. Go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot Com. That's keystonetech.com. Thanks to them. And also the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. And of course, Jane Slade from Speclines, non-nailed member, dark sky advocate for volunteering and doing this with me. And of course, Paul Bogart, here he comes. Welcome, Paul Bogart. How are you? I'm good. Nice to be here. Say hello to Jane Slade. Hi, Hi Jane. there. Nice to see you, Paul. I've read your book, and um, it was one of the first pieces of literature that I picked up on the dark sky issue. So I'm very excited to speak with you today. I'm glad to be here. I just finished your book. And um, can I, uh, Jane, do you mind if I just go right to one section of the book that I think is very interesting? Sure. So uh, I want to talk to the, about the part where section where you're talking about feeling safe with darkness and the idea of of a culture of fear and the and the perception that somehow lighting up every industrial shipping area like a prison yard increases safety can you can you start off by just explaining why that's not the case sure um so so much of the way that we think about lighting uh, and darkness comes down to um, kind of a, the basic equation of um, light is good and darkness is bad, and therefore more light is better, right? And it kind of just goes from there. Um, and it's a really uh, uh, kind of an unfortunate reductive way to think about the issue um, rather than thinking about um that it's more complex than that, that sometimes um, light is good, sometimes more light is better, but oftentimes uh, actually we're safer if we if it's dark um, or if we have uh, a certain type of lighting um, that's used. And 
uh, a couple a couple things get in the way of we think that um, having more light makes us safer, and a couple things get in the way of that of that logic. Um, the first is that uh, a lot of the lighting that we have is uh, unshielded, so it's shining right into our eyes, <clears throat> and that actually makes it harder for our eyes to see. Our pupils can um, constrict; uh, we don't see as well. Uh, we only see right what's right in front of us. We don't see what's on the side. Um, unshielded light casts shadows. Um, so this whole notion that uh, if we just light everything up, we'll be safer kind of fails on that level as well. Um, another level that it kind of fails is this idea that uh, um, simply lighting everything up um, makes it a safe area or a safe situation. Uh, and and that then we let down our guard. We're not as careful. We're not as with, you know, we, we do stupid things, that kind of stuff. So it can work that way as well. I think the message that I've tried to relate to people is, look, it's not a simple light is good, dark is bad issue. It's really, a uh, if we want to talk seriously about being safe at night and using light in a way that enhances our safety, let's talk about it as a complex issue um, that has mm -hmm. a whole spectrum of, um, of ways to talk about it. And I'm going to pass it over to Jane after. I think there's one more thing that occurred to me we kind of live in an age of fear right now wherever you look there's a lot of fear and i, I you know and you had the you had the paradigm of the of the light versus darkness which i think is there um i think we're taught to fear the darkness in a way um but i also think that the response to fear is control so when somebody does something about something it it immediately renders the situation more safe or safer or because they've done something right and i i find that questionable um you know but i understand the 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 impulse towards it one of the parts you reference in your book was like the blue lighting systems on campuses actually creating more psychological damage than helping than their actual how many times they were actually used for example so like going around on, on the day you come to university and say, hey, just in case you get attacked every 10 feet or every 20 feet, there's this button that you can go and push. And that's kind of scary. And it's kind of teaching people to, to fear the darkness. Is, it, is there a control instinct in us that makes us want to react to things and, and do something about something? And once we've done something, then we're not going to get sued. Then we're not going to. This is not going to happen because we've taken these measures. How do we solve that issue, Paul? Oh, I think you're absolutely right. You know, that is the way that we address stuff that we're afraid of is to try to control it, try to strangle it into submission, um, you know, try to, if, if we're afraid of the dark. And the thing about it is, too, is that people will deny that they're afraid of the dark and then you'll go to their house or their business or wherever and it's all lit up, you know, so it's like... I, I, there is a lot of, you know, the fear of the dark comes from, uh, I think there's some good evidence that it comes from uh, way back in our past and our DNA, but then also, and especially living in a society where we're repeatedly told um, that darkness is scary, um, that be afraid, that kind of thing. Um, it, it's a tough one. I know that, uh, you know, the easiest thing for politicians to do, for example, is to, to increase the lighting. Um, even if there's really 
as I write about in the book, there's no um, research that would really support that that's going to do anything. They like to say that, look, I've done something, right? Um, and same thing with litigation. Um, people are afraid they're going to get sued if they don't light everything up, even though there really has not been a, a history of uh, people um, successfully suing people for areas not being lit up. You know, it's just this fear of, I don't, you know, what can I control? I can control turning up the light, right? And that, and we kind of leave it at that. You're up, Jane. <laughs> well, well, I just want to say I'm so excited to speak with you today. I purchased your book uh, early 2018. And at that time, um, I was working for a company and we, I was writing a presentation for Light Fair. Um, and that was all on a hunch. Uh, basically, I was working in, a, in the lighting industry and seeing how much we were lighting the, the planet. And I just had this feeling that wildlife was suffering. Um, and so I bought your book. I bought a ton of other books. And I wrote the presentation entitled Starving for Darkness. And in that, I, I showcase all of the types of animals, which is basically everyone that is fearful or that is being negatively impacted by the constant light and brightness on our planet. So I really appreciated your book because it really spoke to everyone. It's not just for people in the lighting industry. So it's like a massively important piece to try and get the word out there. Um, now, the thing is, is that we talk about fear. And I think as humans, when we're all living in cities and we're all living in these mechanized environments that are designed to create the most comfort and safety, that um, you know, if you turn into darkness and you turn into the fear of it, we'll amplify it. So my feeling is that if we turn into the other side, which is what are we missing? What are we losing? What could be incentivized? That that's a far better way to, to, to create the turn. So I think it's so important to talk about how there's this perception of safety that isn't really there. Um, but at the same time, what are people missing? And and what are what is your daily life like in terms of the observation of darkness, in terms of what it means to you, to your family, et cetera? So we'll start there. And I have a lot more questions about the rituals of darkness, but I want to start there. Uh, thanks for the question. And, and thanks for reading the book, too. Um, yeah, my daily life, it's interesting. So I live in Minneapolis um, and I live down in uh, south of the in the southern part of the city, right by the airport. So there's, you know, um, like any major American or Canadian city or cities around the world, we have plenty of light in the sky and the airport is at times, you know, on a cloudy night, it's it's all lit up. So um, a lot of my experience of uh, of darkness here is. Um, you know, taking advantage of what I can, the moon still comes out. It's still beautiful. I still, the other night I went for a walk in a local park and just soaking up the, what darkness we have, but it's also knowing because I do know, um, what isn't here any anymore and what we're missing, you know, what it, what it would be like if, uh, there wasn't all this, uh, light pollution, if we weren't shining our lights up into the sky and, and, and creating this, um, really unnatural, uh, situation. Um, and I think that's one of the things that uh, I always am thinking about is how many people have no idea what they're missing. 
how many people have no idea what um, a real night or, or like we were talking about darkness, what real darkness looks like. Um, you know, how bright the moon is if you're out uh, in the woods, for example, and there's no, not near a city, how just lit up it is, how the Milky Way, you know, and all the stars look, how the, how alive the night is. You mentioned wildlife. Um, and just most people have no idea. You know, I, I think I say, um, you know, if you're, uh, who knows, pick, kind of pick an age, but in your 40s or younger, you've just grown up swamped in light and you just have no idea. Um, I know when I give presentations, it's always, almost always the folks that are in their 60s, 70s, 80s who come up and say, I remember what it was like, you know, or mm -hmm. when I was a kid, I used mm -hmm. to do this kind of thing. And so, um, you know, I try to take in, in my daily life and I have a two-year-old now, you know, and she, um, she loves looking at the moon and she loves going out and I, I try to share that with her, but, um, I know that what I experience is not, um, I know we're missing a lot, uh, here in the city. Well, a follow-up question is how do you think that that loss and that lack is changing the collective thinking? and the methods of thinking. Yeah, well, I mean, we don't, um, you mean, especially related to uh, darkness and lighting or just in general? Well, well, I'll put it this way. Uh, if I sit out under the night sky, I can feel my thoughts shift from a to-do list to a much deeper uh, place philosophical about existence and it connects me back into like who I am as a living thing. And, and so I just am wondering what you think, since you do speak on the topic so often, what this disconnection is doing to the collective consciousness and the thinking. Mm -hmm. I think it has an enormous effect. Absolutely. Right. And so the challenge is that it's um, largely intangible it's hard to put a price tag on that kind of thing you know so we i mean we safety is something people care about dollars or something people care about um but but so much of the value of this kind of experience a first-hand experience with a real night sky for example or with real darkness has to do with things like uh um reflection on your life and your place in the universe um your relation to the rest of creation and if you know um if you have a sense of uh a connection to a, a larger um creator for example um who the questions that people have asked forever like who am i what's my relation to um the rest of humanity and the rest of creation those kinds of things i think are just are are um used to be a key part of what it means to be a human being and now they've I don't know if they are anymore, right? Um, mm -hmm. I like to say that what was once most one of the most common human experiences, which is walking out your door and coming face to face with the universe, and we've made it one of the most rare human experiences, mm -hmm. right? So, what does that experience? What, how does that impact us? How does that affect us? Um, you know, it inspired religion, and it, it inspired. Um, science it inspired uh per, like i said personal reflection all these things mm -hmm. that again hard to put a price tag on but to say that they're not uh 
meaningful and valuable to to being a human being is um i think it's a huge loss there's a reason why we sent burnt lamb smoke up to the sky you know like our ancestors like mm. there's a reason that why we did that right because god mm. was up there or the creator of the universe or whatever you want to call it doesn't really matter all that much mm. I, do you think that the um, explosion, this isn't just a complete connection I'm trying to make. I talk to a lot of spiritual people. I do many podcasts, but I, I talk to a lot of spiritual people. They talk about the inward and people doing yoga and meditation. And now it's um, uh, psycho uh, mushrooms, like ayahuasca is becoming very, very popular now. And I wonder if it's because we're missing something and that the we used to naturally get our dose of awe. You know, we humans, when we walked outside or went to the woods or, you know, even not even 50, 60 years ago, it was quite common. Um, you think the explosion of um, other types of self-reflection activities and that is as a result of people lacking this experience? It makes sense to me, for sure. I, I like that phrase, you know, our dose of awe. Um, that we're, we're, not, <laughs> we're not getting that. And, I, and again, I think that goes back to what I was saying about like, what happens to us when we walk out and all of a sudden we're, you know, overwhelmed with, um, with stars. There's the, the story I tell in the book fairly early of, of, uh, the night I was in Morocco mm-hmm. in a, in a, um, <laughs> a pretty rustic, uh, youth hostel. And I woke up in the middle of the night and walked out and I just thought it's snowing. That's the first thing mm-hmm. I thought, you know, and it was just that there were so many stars and no artificial light. We were on the edge of the Sahara and, you know, what does that do? I mean, I think it must affect us, um, body, mind, and spirit. You know, I think it, 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 it just has to. Um, and so, um, when you think on the other hand, where we are now, where people walk outside and, um, even on a clear night, even on a clear night, you're lucky to see, um, you know, a dozen or two dozen stars. And it just isn't that, it isn't awesome. Um, it's still, you know, I think it, it's, it, it's still cool to look up and say, hey, there's, you know, there's Jupiter, or there's Mars or that kind of thing. But nobody's walking out and looking at, you know, 10 stars and just being like, oh my God, you know, yeah, I've, for sure. maybe some people are, but not too many people. So, yeah. There's something that happens to my thinking when I'm looking at the stars, which is that very quickly the concept of infinity comes in. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that is so plaguing on the limitations of the human brain because it doesn't really make sense. And so once you start confronting that by looking at the infinity of the universe, it's it suddenly starts to make all the things in your daily life seem maybe a little less important, but in a good way, it's a, a, a checking. And I, I think that when we lack that type of experience, you know, we talk about a lot of the times in yoga and meditation, it, the concept of the waterfall of thought. And it's always going, it's never ending. But if you can step back from it and just have a little bit of vantage that that night sky can provide, it can be a real way to um, assess really what is really important. So I, I think that, um, that the night sky was sort of a, a breaking of that waterfall of thought for humans in all of time. 
And I also think that now more than ever, I've heard this term, the blitzkrieg of information that's coming through on our phone. Um, I mean, it's constant. And especially, you know, recent, recent things have been going on where it's just constant news all of the time. And I think we've sort of turned away even further from checking our waterfalls of thought. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll tell you this one quick story. And then I want to ask you about any rituals and practices that you have in your daily life. But um, my cousin was staying with me and he and his son came back to my apartment and I had all the lights off and they were like, what are you doing? And I was like, I am, you know, I'm revering darkness. Um, it was at dusk. And so I, I waited to turn the lights on and we actually then all s- sat in my living room in the dark and chilled and it was quite lovely. And so I just want to ask, you know, what are rituals and practices in your life that how you bring darkness in? I, I realize you live in a city and and um, I was listening to, I think, one of your IDA talks recently um, mm-hmm. online, the IDA talk with Ruskin, partly. And um, you were saying how you're interested in the dark sky places as a place to revere darkness. But how can you do that in, in cities where most people live? So what are your rituals around darkness um, in your own in your own life? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think that uh, um, one of the things that I do, and this relates to um, uh, my writing practice and and, uh, also just living um, healthily, knowing the science behind, you know, the impact of artificial lighting on our bodies and that kind of thing, um, is as I, uh, in the hour or two before uh, going to bed, I'll just... um, light some candles, uh, in my room and, um, uh, try to turn off as many lights as I can and, and, um, just kind of tone down the lighting and create a different atmosphere at night and, and start to pay attention. I think it goes to what we've been talking about here, but, um, try to get away from that blitzkrieg of information and and start to hear the, you know, try to hear the person that I really want to be and that I've always wanted to be and get in some senses, get back to that, um, to that person, check in with myself, uh, and that kind of thing. And I think lowering the lights and having the natural light of candles for me, um, starts to create the atmosphere that allows for that to happen. Um, so that's one thing I would do. The other thing is that, um, I'm very attentive to the moon. Mm. Um, one of the fun things I did, uh, Henry David Thoreau, uh, the American writer, uh, has an essay called Night and Moonlight from the 1850s, and where he said, you know, basically, do you pay attention to the moon? Um, it, you know, it's this amazing thing. And I thought, huh, I'm going to pay attention. He says, what if you paid attention to the moon for a month? You know, and I was like, I'm going to try that. <laughs> and so, um this was, I don't know, maybe 10, 10 or 12 years ago. And uh, the first few moons are easy because they appear in the West, you know, the new moon kind of mm-hmm. after dusk and you're awake anyway and that kind of stuff. But gradually, you know, they get later and later. Ever since then, though, I've been super attentive to when is it going to, when are we around the full moon? When is it coming back? Um, and that kind of thing. And when it does come back, I really try to 
to get out and appreciate it. So to get outside, um, no matter what the season or the weather is and, uh, just be out under the moon, uh, and acknowledge it. Um, I have no idea what that does. If it does anything, <laughs> you know, if, it, if I met it, you know, if I'm a dollar wealthier from it, it's just it's something that I do as a way of, um, paying attention. Uh, is there a life? Is there a, so I'm going to tell a little anecdote too. So I put a sun tunnel in my, uh, my house. I love natural light. And, uh, my one, I have four kids. One of my daughters only has one window. So I put, also put a sun tunnel in her room just to give her some more natural light. And she's still young enough that we can cuddle. So she's 10. So my, all my kids, they don't cuddle anymore. The older ones, they're done now. But she's my last one. And we read a story and we have a little bedtime routine. And we turn the light off and we look at, and we cut, shut her curtains and we look at the moon. And I'm just like, she's like, dad, I'm so sick of hearing about the moon in my room. Get your own moon in your own room. But actually, I, that is such a wonderful experience for me because it's brighter on some nights and less bright on others. It's on the back of the house where there's no street lights coming into it. And it like it really, it's, it's, it, the clouds sometimes are going over it and you see the light change. And it's so seductive for sleep, dude. Like I'm telling you that. That just that light coming in, whatever 4,100K, whatever the moon is, that little trickle of light is very sleep inducing, especially when it's the clouds are going over and it's changing. Oh my goodness. I, I pass up my device has to come get me probably one out of three nights in there because I'm I pass out because it's just such a, a wonderful experience. But my question for you, Paul, um uh is and I've asked you this before, Jane. Um oh, there right. we go. <laughs> Hello. So we got a cat. The cat just jumped on uh, um, Jane's computer there. I love this age. But the uh, is do we have a relationship to fire that is um, the mm. color of fire? That warm light, the, the, the high levels of infrared heat, even off a candle? You know, that... Um, that, you know, whether it's whale oil and for the first nations up North in Canada or whatever, they're burning something and that, that, that the infrared, the heat and the light together, it does, what, is there something scientific or is there more to it than spiritual? I, I think we absolutely do. I, I can't tell you scientifically for sure. Um, but, um, you know, this, this issue really comes up a lot with um with lighting outside like street lights and that kind of thing you know and and just this um uh we've seen it in the shift to um to led street lights for example so many of which are uh this um they're rich with the the blue white lights mm -hmm. um and you know people just say nobody wants to look at that stuff oh. you know it, it's just it's harsh it's bright um uh, and, you know, there's a reason that we love to sit by a campfire and just stare at the flames, for example. Nobody wants to just stare at a light bulb of this blue rich white light. <laughs> there, there is definitely yeah. something. Um, there's something about Well, they do that, do it I, with TVs, actually. There's something about TVs that's something like that is going on. Like there, is that it's right? Like, yeah, I think people stare at TVs for the, but in a way of, in a longing for something more. To get something more for it yep. from it, you know? Yep. 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 So just to tie in with what you both were talking about when I was, I met a, um, uh, an Australian scientist last year who studies, um, the effect of lighting on our, our physical health and that kind of thing. And, uh, the local, uh, is he in, I think he's in Melbourne and, uh, 
they the local paper did a story on him and they called him the doctor of darkness and the picture of him was of him in his house at at dusk just as you described jane with all the lights down low and the reporter came in and was kind of like what's going on here you know and he's like <laughs> i do this every night because this is what we should be doing for optimal health you know this living in artificial light up to the point of going to bed is just not it's not good for us. You know, it's, it's better to be, and he's just talking physically. Um, it's better to be in a low light situation in the evening. So. Yeah. And I, I think that the, it's also important that people know that when we talk about darkness, it's not necessarily that you need to be in a full pitch darkness because that sounds quite boring to people. So That's I think right. we're kind of uh, perhaps misselling it. But there's an opportunity for romance in terms of watching the gradient of the sky change or lighting a candle and having a candle at dinner or turning down the lights really low and and having that experience before bed. That this isn't about complete darkness because our ancestors, they they hunted and gathered under the blue dome of the sky and then they lit a fire and they went to bed and they when they that the bedtime was the darkness, the complete darkness, but the, uh, there was beautiful, dim, very natural light, uh, up until that point. And, and that's, I think what people don't realize when we're talking about that discussion. So I think, um, your, your, your ritual with candles is an important one to note, because I think that's what people think of when they think of a beautiful time, but we don't build that into our lives. Yeah. So That's jumping right. to a question for you, which is, um, can you talk about darkness as a metaphor in our lives? So in terms of, you know, not just that you, you, you talked about that at the beginning in terms of darkness being, you know, kind of not glorified. Um, but what are the beautiful metaphors of darkness that you see that we could kind of bring in to incentivize the movement? Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, it uh, was really important for me to have the subtitle to the book um, that we that I do, which is, you know, searching for natural darkness in an age of artificial light. Uh, and I, mm -hmm. I meant that, you know, obviously, literally, um, we live in a time where we're just swamped with with artificial electric and increasingly uh, electronic lighting. Um, but also metaphorically, right? A, a time of artificial light where, um, you know, what is success? Um, you know, it, it feels to me fairly artificial, the definitions that we have for that. Um, what does it mean to be, we were talking about this earlier, you know, to be a human being? Um, what do we value? What are we teaching our kids? All these things that to me seem so, um, so often to be, um, artificial things, you know, whether they're, they're, they're actual, um, stuff or things we value or, um, prestige, you know, just things that, boy, you know, there's more to life than, um, uh, for example, um, just being happy all the time, uh, this idea of don't worry, be happy. Mm. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, throughout, uh, the history of the human race across cultures in the Greek hero myths and, uh, First Nations and Native American um, cultures, darkness has been um, an important part of our journey as human beings to to 
become human, right? That they're that nobody on the everybody who's on a on a journey goes through a dark time, uh, and that um, that is part of what it means to be alive. Um, and we're so back to the fear notion. We're so afraid of that, and we try to push it away and keep it, and we don't, you know, uh, give us the answer. We don't. We're really bad at existing in uncertainty, for example. Um, and I just keep saying, you know, it is, darkness is a part of life and to engage with it is ultimately going to be, um, more, um, fulfilling, fulfilling for us, um, than to avoid it and try to push it away with, uh, either our artificial lighting or our artificial, uh, our values. So. Yeah. You spoke a lot about melancholy. In the, there was a whole chapter on it. Yeah. The idea yep. and the different, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in the definitions of words and their comparison. Yep. Oftentimes they say synonyms are actually the opposite of, of it. It's not really, it's the synonym, like jealousy and envy are opposites. They're not synonyms. Mm. They're totally mm. different emotions. Um, you know, and they're opposite to one another. But what I wanted to say to you about the metaphor, and I want to get a little bit more technical for, for people. We talked about the beauty of darkness, and I want to get a little bit technical about the uh, impacts of no darkness and how that's negative for people. Um, but before I, before we do, do you think like the Luxor, you, you had a lot about the Luxor, you hate the Luxor. It's almost like the ultimate, like when you write about it without saying hate, that's a, it's almost like that's an expression of... Are we, it, it, you know, how, you know, that guy, um, uh, the medium is the message. He's a Canadian philosopher. He talks about the medium as the message and you, you revert your thinking is our use of lighting. Is that an expression of who we are as a, as a culture? Oh yeah, I would for sure. Without doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it, and it goes back to the, the fear thing and the control thing. I mean, when we're talking about uh, controlling darkness, we could easily extend that to just controlling nature in general, um, and and um, you know not respect not respecting it and 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 all that kind of stuff too. I, you know, darkness is in some senses uh, a, a resource, um, and um, like the National Park Service here in the states um, identifies it as a resource, just that just as they do something that they they want to protect. So that people have that experience uh, and they see it endangered. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. So then tell me a little bit about this long light and the light addiction that you spoke about in your book, the idea of like long light and people just being in light too much and how that impacts them from a health perspective. Yeah. So the, just, it's just the, the idea of um, that we're, we are in uh, electric, we're in the midst of electric and electronic light sort of all day and long into the night. Um, and so one of the most interesting things that I found in, in the research was the emphasis on the importance of sleep, for example, how important sleep is to us. And um, the folks I talked to who said, you know, uh, short sleep or a lack of sleep is related to this long light. So light way up to the point of going to sleep, even people um, in their bedrooms, for example, with the lights on or some light on or falling asleep to the television and how our, our lack of sleep or our short sleep is tied to every major disease that we're dealing with from cancer to depression, to diabetes to, and one guy, uh, one of the Harvard researchers said, you know, I think we're at our understanding of this 
kind of where we were with our understanding of smoking in the 50s. You know, we're just, we have a notion of it, but we haven't yet quite, um, under, we don't quite understand how important it is for sleep and sleep in darkness uh, and how damaging physically uh, this long light, just being exposed to artificial light. Um, and I think that's how the vast, vast majority of folks um, in the civilized West, at least, are living, which is just lights all day. And then they go in, you know, they're in their house and lights up to the point of, of night. Um, and it's not good for us. So I am wondering, Paul, what do you think the future can look like? What is um, what is the human need for darkness and how can we implement it? What are the tools that we need to figure that out? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've always uh, enjoyed working with this issue for a lot of reasons, but one is that I... I I do really believe that it's readily in, in our uh, capabilities to solve and to work with, um, you know, some of the issues that we're dealing with, like I was just talking with a class this morning about, you know, plastic in the oceans. And it's just like, how are we going to get a handle on that? You know, but when it comes to, to lighting, um, at some basic level, we can turn the lights off. I mean, we're not going to do that, but just to say, like, it's not this overwhelming issue that we don't know how to deal with. And so that gives me a sense of optimism about we can do something about this. Um, for example, one of the things that's exciting is just the increasing um, possibilities of, of new technologies um, that would allow for uh, different ways of lighting our cities, for example, where you wouldn't have to have the same level lighting at, you know, seven o'clock in the evening as you know, as you do at three in the morning when nobody is out and about, let's, you know, reduce the level of light. And we, we have that technology. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so just a matter of, of implementing it. That's kind of on a, on a broader scale. And then I'm, I'm also optimistic in this, on the individual level, which is um, so many people don't really recognize how much light is around them. Mm -hmm. It's, it's amazing. Often um, once I, point out light pollution or point out uh, unshielded lights, people are like, oh my God, I had, you know, I never realized that. And once, once we do start to recognize that we can start to make on an individual level, the kinds of changes that we've talked about, like with the rituals, with uh, sitting in the darkness and the moonlight with your children, um, getting your children out into the night, um, wherever it is, um, and, and under helping them understand um, the value of it, all these things that we can do on an individual level. So I think our relationship with light and darkness is, is always evolving. And um, I see a lot of reasons for, for hope that um, we, we can go at a, in a good direction. I have a, a good news for you. So, mm -hmm. um, so this podcast is, uh, you know, put together by the national association of innovative lighting distributors. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so we started working on this about six months ago. Um, and then, you know, everyone knows what happened, right? So we're just coming to the point now where we're making a formal arrangement between the NAILD and IDA and, and, and it, with the release of the IES's five principles of responsible outdoor lighting. That was a mandate that came down from the IES to NAILD saying, okay, this, this is what you do. Now you teach your people to do it. Uh, to say that we encountered resistance from our vendor members is an understatement. 
okay, initially, mm. okay? But mm-hmm. then I talked to them a little bit about it, and we're setting up um, a committee, um, to a roundtable committee to sit down with the ones that do a lot of outdoor lighting and the ones that want to do a lot of outdoor lighting. And, um, and what, I've t- what I'm speaking to them about, instead of talking to them about, you know, uh, regulations and change and paying for extended producer responsibility programs and where you got to cut a check and then we're going to create awareness. I started talking to them about, Hey, why don't we start another lighting boom? Like, come on, how good has the last 10 years been for all of us? Right. Um, and they, and they started, they stopped and they said, what, what are you talking about? I said, look, we can push reset on this whole thing that we just did in the last 10 years. And you know what? We'll be doing a lot of good for people. This will be healthy lighting. It's in dovetailing with the healthy lighting, the wellness lighting perspective. And everybody's going to get rich. Like, what are you guys waiting for? Like, I'm serious. There's so much work to do out there. If we, if we, we put our hats on, roll up our sleeves a little bit and get to work, forget about the nonsense, forget about all the, you know, oh, we always had a wall pack. So it always has to be a wall pack. Well, now we got a job in front of us. We do the education. You guys make the products The distributors will sell the products and we'll, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll get this involved in rebate programs and, um, all that kind of thing. I mean, I don't see it as a negative to these guys and I'm, I don't know what I'm missing. You've probably been fighting this battle for much longer than me. Why is it the default to be negative and why can't they see it as an opportunity? Yeah, I don't know exactly. I think that's always kind of baffled me as well. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things that people will say to somebody like me is like, oh, you, you just want us to live in the stone age. You know, you just want us to no lighting kind of is what you're saying. It's like, that's not at all what I'm saying, right? I'm saying let's instead of having wasteful, dangerous light pollution, you know, the overuse and misuse of light, let's have thoughtful, responsible, good neighbor lighting that is also also, like I write about in the book, can be really beautiful as well. Let's let's think about, you know, the ways that we can use lighting in a in a uh in really positive ways. And I think you're absolutely right. I've always thought like this seems like an amazing business opportunity for somebody to, to grab hold of. Right. Um, you know, it is, there are obvious obstacles and I, and when you get down to it, you run into some of those, some of those things. Um, but I think at the, certainly at the um, philosophical level or at the, the thinking level about what could we do? I just think like, it's a win-win-win-win situation, mm-hmm. right? It's good, good for business, good for safety, good for human health, good for uh, ecological health, all these things. And there's just no reason why we shouldn't be doing it. The uh, Jane, you and I had once spoken about, uh, when we first talked, um, we came up with the, the thought that is, you know, un- uh, wasted light at night, is it hazardous waste? And that's an interesting way to mm-hmm. think about it. And it is hazardous waste. You know, um, how, so I, we're going to be creating some educational programs about dark sky, not from the ethical perspective of what we've been talking about right now, but really more about the technical side of it, how to do it, how to do it right. And not for lighting designers, which Jane, I know you said they're lacking still, but they're probably way ahead of the lighting distributors. Um, lighting distributors sell most of the outdoor lighting, right? All those factories with 5,000K wall packs that you drive by, that's most likely sold by a lighting distributor or a lighting contractor, one of the two. And so if we can get to those guys, 
get them on board. The final step would be how do we get people like the DLC and the and the utilities to come on board with this and say, hey, yes, you can get a rebate for switching to LED, but it also has to be uh, it also has to be abided by the five principles of responsible outdoor lighting. Um, how do we and how do we fix that side of it, Paul? Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I don't know, for example, it's not, I don't have a, a ready answer for you on that one. Um, I do think that, you know, at least, for example, here, the utilities are concerned about public perception uh, of, you know, what they're, how people perceive them. Are they, are they friendly? Are they neighborly? Are they on our side or are they against us? Are they trying to rip us off? Are they endangering us? That kind of thing. So they do care about it. Um, there is the dollar and cents issue of, of, um, you know, saving energy, not wasting energy makes sense financially, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of uh, talking to a guy in um, in Belgium who was an activist who said, you know, uh, I wish we could just go say, talk to the utilities, the governments, and just say, um, and talk about beauty, right? And talk about how beautiful night, is. you know, and he said, of course, that doesn't work at all. And he said, you know, you have to be weaponed with knowledge, as he said, right? You have to be, you have to be, you have to come at them with all the different reasons why this is a good, good for them, good for us, good for the environment up and down the board. I think beauty matters. I think, I think, uh, uh, I think that uh, beauty is also very valuable. I mean, why do people go on the Seine River and look at the Eiffel Tower at night? I mean, because it's incredibly beautiful, actually, you know, so beautiful lighting, um, it's, it's at the core of design. Um, I think it, I think it's worth a lot of money, actually. There's an argument there that practical argument to beauty and saying, Hey, if this place is more beautiful, it's a lot more valuable. Jane? Yeah, no doubt. Well, Paul, you, you mentioned the concept of cigarettes in the 1950s. And I, I often talk about how doctors in the 50s were, you know, saying it's okay to have a, a puff every now and then. And, and now that's sort of where we are with lighting. And I, I have drawn that equation myself. And so, um, you know, from that perspective, it really becomes an awareness issue. And so when we're talking about a, a group of people that's so disconnected, that they don't know long, no longer know what they're missing. How can we create awareness in the lives of everyone to know that lighting really is so secretly counterintuitive? It's like um, it's around us all the time. Uh, we have it at, at our whimsy, um, but we don't we don't think about really what it is. What that I, I was in Maine and I was watching the TV commercials for these ridiculous LED light bulbs that would have, if you were to put it in the socket, it would make the entire space look sterile and, and overly bright. And so it's like, people don't have the connection between, uh, uh, what I'll say is this, brightness is sexy and it sells, but it's mm. the lack of a disconnect between what it is actually doing. So with, there's, with all of this disconnection and the counterintuitive aspects of lighting in general, how do we attack this awareness issue? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, that is, it's, it has always seemed to me like the, the key to um, what we're trying to do here. And that's why I wrote the book and that's why I give talks and that's why I do everything that I try to do.
simply to, um, on one level, simply to um, help people become aware of this. Um, uh, I'm reminded of the the saying that, you know, nobody knows who discovered water, but it probably wasn't a fish <laughs> kind of thing, right? We're so surrounded by light that we're mm. just like, we don't even recognize that it's, it's, that it's there basically. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And so how many times have I, you know, given a talk and I see people, I see it happening in their, you know, in their heads, on their faces where they're like, oh yeah, I've never thought about that. Right. The, um, and, uh, so yeah, uh, on a, on that level, just becoming aware of that this is an issue, and then, like I was saying, an issue that we can we can that's in our control to do something about. It. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things I think. Like uh, when I talk to my students, and we talk about like the future isn't um, just already uh, um, described for you know. It's like we can shape the future. Like, what do we want our nights to look like? What do we want, you know, uh, what do we want our lighting to be? It's the same. It's the business thing, too. It's like, wh- where is the opportunity here to shape mm-hmm. our cities and our, our towns and stuff? And um, but it does. It, it starts with the awareness that this is even a thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you know, it's I a chicken. It's made... a chicken and egg pot problem. It's mm-hmm. a chicken and egg problem, right? You know, yeah. Can you, you know, can you solve it before people realize it or do you, can you? realize it before they can solve it right it's 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 a tough one because i mean there are people that have grown up in say new york city or toronto or wherever that have never seen the stars in any meaningful way yep. oh yeah in their entire lives when they could be 40 years old and they've never you know laid on a on a, a, a canoe in the middle of a lake in northern ontario and been just kind of had their minds completely blown and forgot that they were being eaten alive by mosquitoes um yep that's right you know, it's like you forget about that. And you're like, oh my goodness, I've been out here for 15 minutes just lying here, you know, maybe an hour. How long have I been here? So, you know, I think that's probably a, a good place to close it, Jane, unless you have anything else. We're almost coming up on an hour here, Paul, of your time. Thank you very much. Jane, I, I would say thank you. And it's such a privilege to pick your brain uh, and, and mm-hmm. talk to you because I, I'm just, as a person who reveres darkness, I'm so appreciative of the awareness that you've already created and the soil that you're tilling for all of us who are working towards returning to the night. So thank you for getting that awareness and and starting where you have um, so that we can come in and join the effort. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I mean, I think it's um, the other thing is that, you know, once it started with the stars for me, but then pretty quickly when you start to learn, when you start to become aware of it, you become aware of how this issue touches our lives in so many ways, mm-hmm. you know, from the physical health to the the waste of money to the safety issue. I mean, there's lots of stuff we could have, we could talk more about, um, but our relationship to lighting or light and darkness is really um, uh, integral to what it means to be alive on this planet. So. Paul Bogart, thanks for being a guest. You can find his book like I did. You can find his book like I did on Audible, uh, read by Paul. Hey, you know what? Not everybody can read their own book, man. That was it good. It was a lot of work. I it bet. Was a lot of work. And hey, am I crazy? <laughs> did you start the chapters backwards or something in that book? That, that's uh, So it starts with chapter nine and it goes down to chapter one. And that you know, mimics uh, the Bortle scale from, yeah. dark, um, from Bright 
Down to Darkness, yeah. That as a yeah, listener, crazy. yeah, I was like, I'm yeah. in chapter three now. What the heck's going on here? My, I was looking at Audible and all yeah. sort of stuff. But yeah, no, what a great yeah. book. It really enjoyable, especially if you, uh, your listen, man, your prose is amazing. Actually, hey, thank you. Yeah, like I studied English lit in, in university, and I've read a lot of a lot of great writers. And you have an excellent prose style, man. I mean, the way, especially the opening of the book is very lyrical, man. Very, very well written, actually. So, thank you. Yeah, it's very beautiful. And for the folks listening, you made it all the way to the end. Of course, it's on Amazon. It's on Audible. Where else can they find it, Paul? Uh, anywhere, I would say. Uh, <laughs> anywhere. Point, so, yeah. anywhere yeah. good books are sold, look up Paul Bogard. And if you made it to the end yeah. with us today, hey, thank you very, very much for listening. And get out there and sell some dark skylighting. Bye for now. Keystone Technologies. K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. What does that song go? We're far from the shallow now. Right into the deep end is Keystone on the dark sky thing, Greg. They're getting after it. They uh, have some exterior fixtures. They're just getting into that side of the business. As we know, they have everything else out there. So they're getting into the exterior. But what are they going to do? They're going to commit to being dark sky friendly, dark sky compliant with their fixtures and really cover everything that you need for exterior lighting. They have some product now but they're going to have a lot more going forward. So be ready for it. Yeah. And we're going to partner with nail to create a lot of educational programs. So distributors out there, we want to start the buzz. The buzz comes first. What are you doing about dark sky? What? You don't know anything about dark sky? Yep. Well, the buzz, we want to start the buzz out there, folks, get the buzz going. What are you doing about dark sky? What are you doing? You don't know about dark sky. We got to get that going first. Then we get that going. Then we're going to do all the training programs and evolve for you guys. So all the stuff of how to do it's going to be there for the nail distributor, nailed members only. That's right. So all our training, how to do it, what the fixtures look like, what do you do in this application, what do you do in that application, it's all going to be there for you, five-minute videos. So keystonetech.com, that's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com for backing us up and keeping it easy. National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, where it all starts, and Jane Slade, the original dark sky nailed advocate coming in hot with Paul Bogard. Come on, Greg. We're we're lining it up here, man. Love it. Just getting started. Ooh, the prosperity of the independent lighting distributor. That's the dark sky cue. We're going for it.